Hello and welcome to the Brexit Central podcast. I'm David Scullion and I'm joined today by Oliver Lewis, who's the former research director at Vote Leave. Can I just start by saying, how on earth did you end up doing that? Because I'm sure they didn't advertise widely. No, they didn't. Um, basically, my uh, introduction to Eurosceptic politics came straight away after university. Uh, I had actually interned for Michael Gove during my gap year. I'd met uh, some very interesting people, uh, including one Dominic Cummings. And then after I finished university, I had the great fortune of meeting Matthew Elliott, who was then thinking about setting up a new campaign. Uh, I worked with him on uh, basically analysing the Eurosceptic scene and uh, the question of Britain's membership of the EU. And uh, was very lucky that after we'd finished this piece of work, uh, Matthew decided to launch an organisation called Business for Britain, which was making the Eurosceptic case for uh, basically a business case for why power should come back from the European Union, and I was asked to be research director. Uh, we spent a few years making that case, building up a list of businesses, producing research, and then after the 2015 election, uh, which David Cameron won, and we knew a referendum was coming, Business for Britain turned into Vote Leave. So I was uh, very basically in the right place at the right time, and having helped uh, with some other roles actually as we were forming Vote Leave, I was eventually asked by Matthew and Dom to be Director of Research. So you set up this organisation, but you weren't explicitly Eurosceptic, were you? you, you what, why was that important? Why Was it always the plan to turn Eurosceptic, or, or was it was it supposed to be open-minded about the, the issue of Brussels and EU influence? Well, it was open-minded, but I think it's fair to say that there was always a strong suspicion among uh, people involved in Business of Britain that the reforms that we genuinely believed that Britain needed in its relationship with the EU were not going to really be on the table. Uh, we basically came in saying that you know Britain's membership of the EU uh, basically put a lot of democratic constraints on how we were governed and that generated red tape for businesses and all sorts of other problems etc. Uh, and that the way to basically rectify that was to bring powers back. So, for example, in 2014, we wrote a paper saying that small and uh, small businesses should be exempt from EU regulation. Uh, perfectly credible on the face of it. But, of course, that flies not just against how the EU works, but the entire principle of the EU, the ever-centralising uh, sort of tendency and you know the belief in ubiquity, which basically is the heart of the European project. So, you know, we always said, and this was true, that if the EU were to embrace serious treaty change and was to address these sort of concerns, then, you know, we would be willing to support it. point is that that's never going to happen. And the fact is that when Cameron went over to get a renegotiation, the EU basically told him to jog on. And, you know, he, remember, he went into the 2015 election pledging treaty change. That was his sort of headline promise for the renegotiation. It took a few weeks before he had to drop that because there was just no way that he was going to budge. So you would have you would have been happy if you'd got the modest changes you were asking for, but you just knew that that was never going to happen. It's perfectly plausible to imagine that had those reforms been achieved, that a lot of us in the Eurosceptic movement would have to look and say, well, actually, what is the nature of our objections if the EU had changed in the pretty, I wouldn't say it was modest, I'd say it was actually pretty fundamental mm. um, ways that we were demanding. The point is that the EU didn't do that, and in fact, just basically, as I said, told us to jog on, which confirmed a lot of my views of the EU. My, my sort of irritation, the reason I got involved in this movement was because I thought the EU was basically 
an institution that didn't really pay heed to people's concerns and to member states' concerns. And basically the way they treated David Cameron confirmed that. So you, you helped to set up Business for Britain, but why was that needed? Why could you not have just joined UKIP? So basically Business for Britain... Uh, basically filled a gap in the Eurosceptic market. Back in 2012-2013, you did have various organisations which had done a lot of good work in terms of promoting the Eurosceptic message. Um, And a lot of people involved on the grassroots level, certainly, who had been diligently working for decades. But what there wasn't was a business voice. And we realised very quickly, as I did this work with Matthew, that one of the claims that the Remain campaign would make in any future referendum was that the business community wants to stay in and that your job depends on us staying in. We had this claim from the Euro campaign back in the late 90s, early noughties, which was that three million jobs were linked to the EU. Complete and utter rubbish. But this was a sort of claim that they basically focused on. They had a lot of organisations like the CBI, which they could wield out to basically uh, promote this sort of stuff. And what we needed was we needed... Uh, basically a business voice to counter it. And one of the things we realised quite quickly as well was that while the pro-EU side was very good at basically getting big business on board, what they weren't very good at was getting small business on board because, of course, small businesses were the organisations which felt the brunt of the EU regulation. And one of the bits of research that we did was proving that only around 5 or 6% of businesses export to the EU. So the whole point was that the vast, vast majority of British businesses didn't see any benefits whatsoever from EU membership. What they did see was a lot of regulation, a lot of problems, uh, etc. So, in many ways, not only what, what Business of Britain did was, one, it was defensive in the sense of, you know, it was coming in and saying, actually, business isn't united on this, business is split, and there are businesses that have really big concerns. But on another level, it was also offensive. It was giving a soapbox, a platform, to those uh, small businesses who hadn't really had a voice in the debate, and who the public wanted to hear from, to articulate a you know a dimension to the EU debate which hadn't been really heard before. So, so you and Matthew were there, you're setting up Business for Britain. How many of you are there? Is it just you two at that point? Uh, initially, it was just us two. Um, and then what happened was, uh, basically, in the sort of spring of 2013, uh, Matthew, who did amazing work on this, uh, basically was able to take the ideas that we had generated and launch a campaign. Matthew had a great great track record of launching winning campaigns such as the Taxpayers Alliance. And so he brought uh, that uh, skill to launching uh, Business Britain. We made some great hires, uh, people like uh, Dylan Sharp, who now actually works in number 10 for the Prime Minister, uh, George Bristol, uh, who did the development and helped do fundraising, etc. And there was a, it became a small uh, team, uh, closing net, and over time other people joined Rob Oxley, who then became one of the main campaign spokespeople for Vote Leave. Uh, yeah, no, it was always quite tight-knit, but it was nonetheless extremely effective. So there's um, there's a massive book that has seemingly followed me around wherever I've gone. I think the last three offices I've worked in called Change or Go. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, so Change or Go was a piece of work which we did in 2015, just before uh, the general election. And uh, basically what that was, was an attempt to frame the EU debate. We realised that you know, there was a chance David Cameron might win the uh, general election, and that if he does, a referendum was on. And so the point was that we needed to bring together the arguments for why Britain would be better off leaving the European Union, bringing together all the uh, issues which the EU had generated, 
And at the same time, building on what I described earlier, which is this need to make a case, which was that the EU is being unreasonable. So by setting out a series of changes, I think it was 10 off the top of my head, changes that we wanted to see, which by themselves weren't, didn't appear too radical, you know, we wanted some treaty change, we wanted powers to flow back, uh, despite the fact that you know, we were offering changes, we all knew the EU wasn't going to agree to it, because that goes against the principle of a close union, it goes against the principle of, you know, more centralisation. So Change Will Go was basically an attempt to bring together uh, both the work that we had done in Business of Britain, but also other work from other groups, etc., all distilled, accessible. And yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty intense few months to pull that together and write it, but I think the result was quite good. So tell me about that, how it carried on then. So Business of Britain became Vote Leave, um, and then you were trying to get a designation. Just tell me a bit about that, because there were some problems. Yes, there were some problems, and actually quite well articulated in the recent uh, Benedict Cumberbatch film. Uh, you know, basically, Business of Britain uh, was evolving into what became the Vote Leave campaign, but at the same time there were other Eurosceptic groups who wanted to form other campaigns, and one of those was uh, what became Leave.eu, it was originally called The No, uh, which UKIP, the uh, UKIP leadership, I should say, uh, associated themselves with. And that did create a, a range of issues for us. I don't think that's, you know, exactly breaking news to say that. Uh, and it meant that as we were trying to develop this organisation, trying to bring people on board, trying to distill the research that we did into, you know, usable uh, items and ammo for the campaign, we nonetheless were basically having to fend off accusations and attacks, etc. I mean, I suppose the nicest thing that I could say about uh, Leave.eu is that they, I noticed they had a copy of uh, Change or Go uploaded onto their website, which was somewhat flattering in a way. Um, but, you know, yeah, it, we we basically had to launch the this campaign with, as Dominic Cummings has described, a you know, it was an uphill challenge to get people to associate with a campaign which basically everyone in Westminster thought was good doomed to fail, while at the same time fending off various accusations from other campaigns who were trying to uh, take the mantle of the official designation. So, yeah, no, it was pretty tricky. Was the competition useful at all, of having Leave.eu there? In a way, yes, because it basically forces you to up your game. Um, I won't lie, I think that we would have basically upped our game anyway because of the nature of the referendum meant that you had the official in-campaign and all the rest of it. And I think, on the whole, if you know, I could go back in time and wave magic wand, I probably wish they weren't there causing us the problems that they did cause. Um, I think it probably made vote leave less effective than it could have been, um, and simply took up a lot of bandwidth. But you know, as, as you say, you know, competition does tend to drive up performance. So I guess, in a way, it probably had some positive impacts in that way. But as I said, probably on the whole, I think it was a net negative. So before um, before the referendum was even guaranteed, you were there putting this research together, putting this huge document together. Um, and then talk me through what happened. And when you first started the campaign, you've obviously got this huge knowledge. And are you just churning stuff out? Are you doing new research? How's that working? It was a combination of all the above, really, because uh, we both had to do... Well, so the research team of Vote Leave was always quite small. So it was initially me and Richard, uh, also University of Ricardo, and then over time, we built up and we added some more people. So we had uh, people like Ross Allen, James Kirby, Matt Smith and others. But it was only around five or six. I mean, I think at its peak, it was about six. Um, it was a very small team and it had to do a huge number of things. I mean, 
if you think about political campaigns, their research departments are usually in the dozens, um, or certainly in double digits. I mean, we had to do uh, briefings, both for ministers, spokespeople, websites as well, defensive responses, offensive documents, you know, stories to the media, etc. So it was a huge plethora of stuff. And some of that was taking the stuff that, you know, I had written that train to go and turning it into briefing documents. Uh, other elements of the world was purely original stuff. So you're having to watch the news, see, work out exactly what the EU was up to, looking at, uh, you know, for example, a lot of the stories that we did were simply just reading what the EU pumps out. I mean, it's a huge multinational organisation, a very active press room, stuff constantly being pumped out. It's just plotting out that actually, you know, the EU has just announced that it's looking at these measures. What do these measures mean? It means a tax rise. The EU is looking at this. What does it mean? It means a black hole in its accounts. Um, bringing together that stuff, making sure this stuff is constantly being pumped out, while at the same time using the research that we had done to show that, for example, every time the UK had voted against a measure, the EU had nonetheless introduced it. Uh, using it to show that the UK's vote share in all the institutions of the EU had deteriorated over the course of the last 40 years. Uh, all these things that basically we could talk about. I mean, one of the things I remember, which I sort of take as a slight badge of honour, was uh, when David Cameron did one of his uh, sort of panic press conferences in the last few months of the referendum. You know, he was saying, you know, vote leave, it's making all these claims. They're saying, you know, X, Y, and Z about a, a new budget document just been released. And they said X, Y, and Z about. Uh, our influence in the EU and so sort of picking up the different strains of work we had to do I mean it was very long I mean, we, it was in at sort of six to seven leaving very early hours in the morning so we had one or two in the morning um, but I think the result was pretty good in the end but how did it feel to be kind of in competition with the the whole government because you, before Purdy you, you would have had the whole civil service churning out the statistics you, to yeah, yeah, yeah it was daunting I mean basically you, you're completely right. In, in theory, uh, you know, in my paper, the the government had hundreds of civil servants and all the rest of it. But we had the advantage of being, one, extraordinarily passionate. We were people who were, saw ourselves as being in the trenches. And two, we were nimble. I mean, that was a great thing. We didn't have to go through a whole like, complicated political process of, you know, basically, which, which, which led to, uh, I think, it's fair to say, in reading the accounts from the you know, official Remain campaign, you know, all sorts of bureaucratic problems. We were able to, you know, produce stuff very quickly, check it for accuracy, you know, assess its media worth, and then boom, it was out. So who had the final sign-off then? So uh, basically it was me as research director. I would basically sign things off. But, you know, it was a team built, built on trust. And so, so people within your own team, you could think something up yourself and you could basically just get it out without having to go through any... It would go through the media team as well. Like, so you'd have, like, you know, which was led by Paul Stevenson. You know, we'd, we'd say, well, look, you know, we're thinking about doing this. Or actually the media team would often come back and say, guys, we've got a very good idea. This would be a brilliant story. Can you, you know, demonstrate A, B and C? And we'd go, yes, absolutely. Or, mm, I'm not so sure. But what we do is it was dynamic. And, you know, it was more than anything else. It was a team of people who rapidly became very good friends, uh, who trusted each other, who worked really, really hard, all of us. And as a result, we were able to get a system which was very fast, it was effective, it was responsive. Uh, and these are also all things I should hasten to add, which Dom Cummings uh, basically has described in his blog, where he sort of says, you know, the, the secret of good management is, you know, work, you know having seen how bureaucracy uh, operates and is turgid and leads to delays, 
he has basically distilled a whole bunch of management principles which were complete opposite of that, which was about trusting staff who proved themselves and uh, allowing them to get on the job. And that's what we did. And we were allowed to get on the job and we were able to pump things out very, very rapidly. I mean, you know, at some instances we were producing four or five stories a day uh, individually. So you don't want to come and set up that system consciously set up that system where you could approve things rapidly did the um did the physical space that you were in have any bearing on the structure i think it did to a certain extent i mean we we were working in an open plan office uh the research team was basically sitting on a row of desks and right opposite us was the media team and that meant that it was extremely effective insofar as we you know someone could lean over and say oh can you look at x y and z or i could literally take a pile of documents and pass them to the person next to me um, so it did create a, you know, basically an engine, which was just churning away all the time. Um, and I think more in the space, it was the people. I mean, the fact that we were in close proximity to people, which thankfully led to friendships rather than antagonism, uh, which was fortunate, uh, but also meant that, you know, just physically it was very easy to work together. It was easy to, you know, pass on information very fast and just, you know, constantly churn stuff out. So you did have Matthew Elliott and had Dominic Cummings basically created a system that, that kind of regulated itself. I mean, what what was their input? Was it their input on just kind of sensitive things? or No, no so Dom Cummings basically and Matthew were involved. Uh, but what they did, which was extremely effective, was basically trust their own senior staff. So if you think about the core sort of team and press team and the research team, etc., pumping out these stories... You know, there was a certain degree to which they said, look, we trust you guys. We've hired you because we think that you are you know, able to do this stuff. And it just meant we were, you know, we were able to do things quite quickly. And you know, certain instances, there would, would be certain things which you'd have to have more involvement from Matthew or Dom. But other stuff, actually, you know, their involvement was just not necessary. And you know, we're more you know, sort of everyday sort of stories, etc., you could do it that way. Would they set the overall strategy? Would you have particular weeks focusing on particular topics? Uh, yes, although I think it's fair to say that one of the things that Voteleaf did very well was it didn't quite buy into this argument that if, you, know, you had to have a calendar, sort of multicoloured calendar and one week is education week and health week, etc. I mean, to a certain extent we did that, but it was focus. It was focus on the messages that we knew worked. It was people's concern about money and control, and we just kept coming back to those themes. And as a result, I think that actually, rather than sort of as a multicolored week, we actually had, and it was something that Dominic Cummings in particular was really keen to, to push. Uh, it was pretty much unheard of in Westminster. A lot of people reacted quite badly to the idea initially of, you know, why are you focusing on these themes? Why, you know, lots of themes. And, you know, to a sense, we did touch on lots of different themes. We did do stuff on education, we did do stuff on health, we did do stuff on the environment, etc. But we constantly kept back to the themes which we knew resonated with people. And which mattered, you know, fine. But let's be let's be frank, these, these things generally were big problems. So we had that constant focus, which and that, more than anything else, that is what I think the the top tier of management did was they made sure that we constantly had that focus on what resonated, what cut through and what was important. And as a result, you know, we were able to get some good results. Because uh, I think ordinary people aren't focusing on the day to day and ordinary people definitely won't realise it's economy week or, or realise it's education week. I guess, how effective is it to try and rebut everything that the other side says and how effective is it to kind of be following, kind of chasing the day-to-day events? You've got to do a mixture of both. So 
you can't allow in a political campaign you can't allow your, the other side to have a free reign over something if you do you allow them to put up a narrative you allow them to basically you know, as people engage in media obviously everyone's different everyone you know some people are really engaged other people much less so etc but if you allow people to basically paint the scene then when people do pay attention be it you know once every half hour or once a week or whatever then that message will cut through so it's really important that you are def you have got a defensive operation, but at the same time that you can't uh, you you've got to be doing the same the other you know vice versa you've got to be trying setting out track you've got to be trying to defend uh, sorry set out what you think uh, the case is. For us, that was very simple. You know, we said that voting to remain was a riskier option. That voting to remain would mean more money leaving the UK. It would mean less control over our laws. Uh, it would mean less control over. You know, exactly what constituted the European Union. These were the points that we were constantly pushing out, uh, and at the same time, you know, while, while denying that sort of space to the other side. So, the truth is, in political campaigning, it's not that one you know, particular tactic is more important than the other. Uh, you've got basically a bit like you know, you just got to, like a good general. You've got to be able to cover all your different hmm. yeah positions. So if you just abandoned business, if you just said, look, they won the economic argument. <laughs> We think we're right, but we're not going to talk about it. They would have then just had a monopoly on business. Totally. Uh, and I mean, I think one of the things that, uh, jumping back to your earlier point, which is what did uh, senior management do? Anton Senator, yeah, they were very good at saying, uh, you know, look, the economic argument isn't just about big business coming out and saying, well, actually, we think the CEU thing is a really good idea and that uh, you should basically like it, you should basically vote for it no matter what. The economic argument was actually how much of our money are we sending to the EU versus our public services? That is what counts as the economic argument. The, you know, how many million pounds a week we send to the European Union. Constantly coming back to that message. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, I think that's the very, very, one of the most interesting things about the referendum campaign was the Remain campaign was clearly absolutely convinced they'd won the economic argument and that, you know, they'd seen us off, etc. And in fact, actually, there was, there was a dual-track approach that we had. One side... We had business people, via the Business of Britain system that we'd built up over many years, coming out saying, no, we've got real concerns about this, actually. You know, look at all these regulations that have come out in the last few years, etc. This is how it's affected my business. This means I can hire less people, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, painting the scene, offensively, we're going, look, this is the amount of money that's going out of our you know, national wallet every single week. These are the things that it could be spent on instead. And one of the things that we found in the last few weeks of the campaign was that the public agreed with us and that was the economic argument and I, my personal view is that actually Vote Leave won the economic argument because of that uh, because we basically redefined it we were able to, you know we denied the Remain side the field they wanted which was that business unanimously wants you to stay we put our business people and said actually that's not the case but at the same time we redefined it by saying it's not just about business it's about the money that we're spending what money are we spending on the EU and what money are we spending on hospitals and schools, etc., etc. And we won that, I think. Um, and just finally, because we, we're kind of running out of time, in terms of um, media strategy, in terms of going on programmes, and in terms of the many debates that were held, was there a kind of was there a playbook you were looking for? You know, I, I did read somewhere that um, that uh, there was a Remainer who was annoyed at the use of the term the BSE campaign yeah. because it obviously um, sounded like mad cow disease. Um, and um, the advice from Dominic Cummings was, well, you, you should have doubled down more on that. You shouldn't have, you shouldn't have agreed to call it 
um, Britain Strong in Europe and said, what was the kind of strategy in terms of media? So the strategy we adopted was actually from a US military strategist by the name of Colonel Boyd, um, who basically developed several decades ago now a theory called the UDAR loop, which is this idea of how operators in, I don't know, military scenarios, business, politics, etc., come to decisions. And our strategy was you have to get inside their UDAR loop. You have to basically uh, make people, in effect, turn them into, by proxy, your own campaigners. So what we were able to do is by, you know, ranging from the silly things like BSC, etc., and making them, put, rather than having them debate the issues they want to debate, having a defensive argument about their name, we like, you know, guys, who cares? You know, but that was the whole point. We re-diverted their focus by making that point. Um, uh, but at the same time, also, you know, the bigger issue. So, for example, an argument about how much money we send to the EU was a, a classic example of this. We argued it was three hundred fifty million pounds a week, based on the gross figures uh, on the ONS website at the time. Obviously, that was contentious, and there was a bunch of arguments that were made pretty much consistently throughout the whole referendum. That yeah, you know, we should have gone for a lower figure, the net figure. We should take into account this and that etc the point is one I genuinely believe and we defended ourselves throughout the campaign that that was a legitimate figure to use something that was backed up actually by government uh, figures when they were asked to opine on it um, but secondly and more importantly it meant that the debate was on turf that was good for us a debate about how much money we send to the EU is it 350 million no it's actually 270 million no it's 190 million and fundamentally that's a good argument mm. for, for if you're a leave campaigner and it was all about, again, going back to that point we made earlier, which is we were redefining the economic argument without Remain realising. And by getting them to say, no, you should be saying X hundred million rather, X hundred billion rather than 350 million, then actually as a result, we, they were helping us inadvertently. So they would have done, the done better to just totally ignore it and just said, yeah, we send a lot to the EU, but it's worth it because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, at the end of the day, Remain had a number of arguments that they could make. I mean, you know, that job argument, for example, we talked about at, at the beginning. They could make an argument that, uh, you know, actually, hold on, uh, you know, we have got influence. Here are examples, blah, blah, blah. I mean, personally, I don't think any of those arguments are particularly persuasive. But you can see how they, ha- they could have had a coherent argument and in the same way that you know, we took the approach of, for them, having a defensive strategy with businesses, but in the background repainting and redefining the argument, they sh- I think if I was a nervous side, I would have basically said, OK, look, we need to defend against this claim, obviously, we need to say why we think it's, it's rubbish, and etc. But let's focus on these arguments, which we know resonate, and move the debate over in this way. Now, you know, I think it's fair to say they didn't quite pull that off. I mean, it's tricky. You know, I'm not going to pretend to say that you know, Remain was always you know, going to you know, run by people who couldn't understand or didn't see that. I mean, Remain was run by some of extremely talented people. Um, but I think that the strategy they adopted didn't work. And I think it's fair to say that if you have a, if you would have a strategy of trying to redefine the debate, it probably would have been more effective than the strategy mm-hmm. they had was. I don't know if it's finally, but this really is finally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if there was another referendum, if um, Article 50 was extended, if we um, had to go through it all again, would you get the old band back together again? <laughs> well, I, I sincerely hope there isn't a second referendum. I think it'd be very bad for politics in this country and a 
basically be seen as a breach of faith um, by many people in the political process. I mean, at the end of the day, for Vote Leave, I was actually asked, as we described at the beginning, it wasn't advertised per se, I was asked to get involved, and it would depend on people who wanted me back. I mean, you know, ever since the referendum, I moved into the private sector, but, uh, you know, look, I'm still very passionate about this issue, and we'd have to wait and see what what comes, but I say, I'm, I'm very much hoping that's a hypothetical scenario which doesn't <laughs> come to pass. Thanks very much. Great pleasure, thank you so much. I'm David Scullion and I was speaking to Oliver Lewis, the former research director at Vote Leave. You can subscribe to the Brexit Central podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and you can subscribe to our daily Brexit briefing at brexitcentral.com forward slash subscribe.